Praise God. Stand today and uh, go to the Lord in a mindset of prayer. Does anybody have anything specifically that you want to bring before the throne of grace today to pray about? Let's continue to pray for Brandon, for God, for his steps, for right. direction from God for the lost souls, and pray for Sister Kathy and John. Amen. Amen. Urgent request yes. of all urgent requests. Amen. Let's go to the Lord. Lord, we are absolutely stupefied because we understand your ways that are a world, a world from our ways. Constellations far away from our minds and mindsets and human and humanistic attitudes that really can't grasp your all-sweeping, all-knowing knowledge of all the requests, of all the needs you know. We verbalize them and we put them into words, but our human emotion cannot adequately express or ever meet the challenge of what your power can by its own sovereign right pray today that you would touch and minister with effectiveness like you always do. And we'll be very prompt to give you the glory. Amen. I'm going to go to the word of the Lord in our Sunday school lesson today. Teach from pragmatics of the word of God that never gets old, that doesn't fade or change by caprice with the tides or the stem of the tides. We'll read today from the beautiful passage of Hebrews chapter number 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Much has been belabored as theologians have tried to unravel the rather mysterious book of Hebrews. Of course, we know that it was written to regenerated apostolic Hebrews, Jews of the first century, whether written by Paul or the pen of Apollos. Uh, it still nonetheless holds canonical significance in Scripture. Hebrews chapter number 10. Let's begin reading at verse number 32. But call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions. Partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. For you had compassion of me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of, my, of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and unenduring substance. Cast not away therefore your confidence 
which has great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise for yet a little while. And he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back to perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. I want to key in and focus for topical purposes on verse number 35 and teach from this text, cast not away therefore your confidence. Cast not away therefore your confidence. Amen. You may be seated. In the illustrious panorama of the whole scene of Scripture, we see so many powerful spiritual truths imparted to us by holy men of old who spake and likewise commiserated with others writing this Bible as the Holy Ghost, the effervescence of the eternal Spirit of God moved upon them, the compunction of which gave them tremendous insight and revelation into the deeper intricacies of the mysteries of the knowledge of God. And Paul expounds and expostulates brilliantly when he writes to the Corinthians of the mysteries of God, particularly the mystery or the hidden wisdom which was kept secret from the foundation of the world but was revealed when Christ died on the cross. There was a hidden wisdom in the crucifix. There was a hidden wisdom yet mysterious to man that was not yet revealed to man until Christ bled and died. If Satan or the princes of this world had known what Jesus was going to do and wreak havoc on their economy and program, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. Amen. They would have never, Satan would have never speared or probed the hearts of the wicked, sinister Romans and Jews to cry, crucify him, to take him to a whipping post and beat him and pulverize him until his ribcage began to show. They, the devils of hell, the devil and his imps in hell and all the principal powers of darkness would have never, never gone through with the process of beating and decimating and killing the Lord Jesus if they had known if they just had known the hidden wisdom that was going to be made in a revelation through the cross and by the cross, if they had known that the blood that was going to be spilt and shed would be the redemption of man's soul, if they had known that Jesus coming down into Hades, the Bible says that Jonah 
was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, cast out on the sea, on the seashore. Jesus Christ, in the comparison, was three days and three nights in the heart or the belly of the earth. But while Jesus was in the belly of the earth, while he was in hell, he went up to the gates the gates that was assigned to some cohort to stand guard over hell's dominion and reign. And Jesus took the keys of death and hell from the hands of the devil. If the princes of this world had known that Jesus was going to spoil their house, if they had known that He was going to take and clutch in His own infinite, omnipresent, omnipotent, powerful hands, that through His almightiness He was going to to take their authority and then he was going to rise again on the third day holding the keys of the authority and the power of hell and there was a hidden wisdom in that they would have never crucified the glory but because of their ignorance they followed through with the process of killing the God-man, of saying that they were extirpating and exterminating and forever removing the God-man. But what they did not know is that He was not only man, He was also God. And there was a hidden wisdom that was going to be made a revelation that through His death, burial, and resurrection, and through the shedding of His blood would be the redemption of man. But it would also be the purchasing of a church and that we have received of the first fruits of the Spirit bear witness in our hearts uh, that the power of the Holy Ghost was poured out uh, on the day of Pentecost uh, and the mystery which was hid from the foundation of the world uh, that when you get the Holy Ghost uh, you become a learner uh, a didactic learner of the mystery you speak things that absolutely discombobulates the devil the Bible says, Paul said, when you speak with an understanding, the devil understands you. Right. When you talk to God with a word and a verbiage that's, um, that's understandable, the devil also understands what you say when you speak it. But when you pray in the Spirit, you speak mysteries. The word mysteries is a plural noun. It comes from the Greek word mysterion. It is a word that is antiquated in the, the Greek textualization that is a derivative of the intertestamental period of time when Alexander the Great was doing all of his adventures and explorations that as he was conquering the then known world. He always held dear to his heart mysterians, which were secrets or secret battle plans that he would never divulge or share with any of his militants or generals. Only when his army was set in array to attack an opposing enemy force would Alexander reveal the hidden wisdom of his mysterians and the secrets that he held deeply in his mind so that everybody would be prepared for the battle oh hallelujah when you pray on the Holy Ghost it's God's way of communicating to your mind it's God's way of communicating to the human heart there's a secret battle plan that the Holy Ghost is in 
engineering in this hour. And it's only going to be revealed to those. The mystery, the hidden wisdom is only going to be made known. But to those that speak with other tongues, as the Spirit of God gives the utterance. And the powerful aspect of that is the devil has no bearing or knowledge or understanding of what you're saying. When you speak in tongues, you're speaking mysteries that are foreign to his conceptualization. That's why he gets his angriest when he, when he hears the, the, the verbiage or the glossolalia of tongue talkers. He is his happiest when he can hear you say things that denote fear and timidity and capitulation. You are judged by the words of your mouth. And in your mouth is the power of life and of death. And when you speak words of fear, you're speaking death. And the devil understands the language of death. But when you speak in tongues, you're speaking life. Mysteries, hidden wisdom. If the princes of this world had known, they would not have. And there's some things about your life that if the devil knew what God was going to do in and through you, he would have never attacked you in the first place. He would have held his position and his post and never, and never engineered or put into designation his forces to attack you. Oh, hallelujah. If the, if the enemy powers of Philistia had known that there was going to be a little shepherd boy by the name of David that was going to come from the sheep coat with nothing but a sling and a stone. Amen. They would have never set the battle in array. Goliath would have never stepped out in the valley of Elah and said, send me a man. Hey, 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 devil, if you ask for it, you're going to get it. Goliath, if you want a man, here comes a little shepherd boy. He may not look like much, but he's coming in the name of the Lord that you have defied. He's coming in the power. He's coming in the authority. He's coming in the jurisdiction of the name of Jesus. And David, when he saw that overgrown, wooly bully, that ugly face menace, he said, who art thou that you would defy the armies of the living God? Amen. There's a reason. Amen. That David called him an uncircumcised Philistine. David understood according to the tenets and the premise of the Abrahamic covenant that God established with Abraham when he circumcised him in his flesh at 99 years of age. And Ishmael was circumcised at 13. And the precedent was set that every Jewish boy would be circumcised on the eighth day that denotes a new beginning. Amen. That would be the bloodletting that was a, 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 a sign and a token of the covenant that God made with Abraham that would be covenantal to the nation of Israel. And David understood, you are an uncircumcised Philistine. In other words, you do not have a covenant, but I'm coming in the name of the Lord. I'm coming in the power of the covenant keeping God. I have a covenant and because I have a covenant I cannot be defeated and today we have a new covenant amen the law of God has been written in our heart 
thoughts and in our minds. And no matter how much the devil rages, no matter how much hell proposes its battle plan to attack the church, we cannot be defeated. We cannot be overthrown. We have a covenant in the name of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. If the devil had known that his attack would be my roadway or my opportunity or the aperture of my opening to the next dimension of spiritual ministry, he would have never bothered me in the first place. But since, amen, since he has attacked me, since he took the chance to afflict in my body he had better watch out he had better watch his back because I'm not coming in my name I'm coming in the name of the Lord I'm not coming by my might nor by my power I'm coming by his spirit I said I'm coming by his spirit Gideon Gideon said the sword of the Lord and of Gideon when you are baptized in the name of Jesus, there is a there is not only a giving of a new identity, there is the commingling and the wedding together and the marriage of identity. Your human identity takes on a congruity with the identity of the name in which you are water baptized or submerged. The name of Jesus. Gideon said, I become so close to God. God and I have this bond of unanimity and unity and togetherness. I'm not just coming in the name of the Lord. This is the sword of the Lord, but it's also of Gideon. And devil, you have aggravated. You have poked the wrong bear because I'm coming not just in the name of the Lord, but I'm coming in the sword of Gabriel. I have a Bible. It's called the sword of the Spirit. And I intend to use the weapons that God has put at my disposal. If the devil had known, if Diabolos in the remotest had known what you and I were going to become through the assailing of his attacks, he would have never set out to seek our destruction in the first place. God is never taken aback, nor is he surprised by any events that unfold in the chronological sequential um, table of this humanistic timeline. He is eternal. He looks from the perspective of eternity and he grins because the devil can only attack as he permits him to. He goes ahead and lets the devil assail the soul of the, 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 the body of the saint of God and the life of the saint of God. But God is such a mastermind. He is such a strategist. He takes everything that the devil means for evil 
and he turns it for the good. That's what Joseph said to his brethren. You meant it unto me for evil. But there is a God that's got a hidden wisdom. I said there's a hidden wisdom and there's a lesson to be learned. And if I will abide in the vine and if I will stay in the house of God and if I will keep the faith amid difficulties and incongruities, amen, God is going to show, he's going to reveal the hidden wisdom of a spiritual dimension through my pain, through my sorrow, through my affliction. He's going to turn it for my good. He's going to make it work for me. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Work together there is the Greek connotation synergio from which we get our English word synergy. There is a synergy. God takes all things, the good and the bad, the heartbroken, the heartbreaking, the miserable, as well as the miraculous. All things, all events, everything works for the good as long as you love God. I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit. It is amazing to me, as the apostle writes with such liquid, fluid eloquence, that he sets almost dichotomously preparation over against love. Amen. If the conditionalism, if you love God, the preparation is commensurate to the love. Amen. If you love God with all your heart, all your mind, soul and strength, He's preparing something for you. The preparation, the preparation is... He's making you and fashioning you and preparing you to walk to the door to the next dimension. But you can only go as far. He's prepared everything. He wants all things for us. He has, in his mind, prepared to the utmost for us. But some never achieve to the ultimate in God because their love stops just a little bit short of what God and his, amen, and his constructed principled ways has built and erected and prepared for them. He may have prepared a throne for me but if I don't love him when I'm in the pit and if I don't continue to love him while I'm yet in the prison I may never step into the throne but if you love him in the bad times like David when he was being chased by Saul if you love him when Saul is throwing the javelins God is watching the heart of love and while you love him all the while he's preparing a place he's preparing a throne he's preparing a palace and what the devil meant for your ruination right. and destruction and demise God is you and using as the means for your preparation yes he is as long as you continue to love him even when you're baffled. Amen. 
by the mystery of it all. Because right. suffering is essentially mis mysterious. Yes, it is. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And we can extrapolate on so many of these principal points of the New Testament Scripture. I find it at the Last Supper, Jesus in a communal, communal mindset, so sacerdotal, observing the Passover for the last time with his elected chosen 12 disciples. These were his methetas. These were those that he had handpicked and hand chosen for the occupational venture of spiritual ministry or something so sacred and to be said about being chosen by the Lord. There's something so awesome about being chosen especially if you are like Peter, James, and John, a part of that inner circle of knowledge, that inner circle of wisdom. To the nine, much of what Jesus did was hidden wisdom. But to the three, it became revelation because they went beyond, they went beyond where the others did not go and experienced the deeper, finer, more intricate ways of the workings of Christ's power. Amen, that's right. Hallelujah. Pivoting from the Last Supper, understand that the three, at the Last Supper, John was, the, was closest to Jesus. Or I should say nearest, for a better superlative. He was nearest, yet he was closer to the heart of the Master than any of the other eleven. He leaned his head against Jesus' heart. And... Simon Peter would have been perhaps at the opposite end of the table because as you note that when the, the mob, the band came to arrest Jesus in the twilight of the morning on the eve of his trial that Simon Peter was, was wearing or was sheathed with a sword, a scalpel. It was according to Jewish custom, Simon Peter's responsibility to carry that sword to that custom, amen, as an implementation of protection. Amen. And yet Simon Peter misused it when he cut off Malchus's ear. The last miracle that Jesus performed was the healing of a man's ear. Amen. We that have an ear, let us hear. Amen. We cannot continue to mishandle and misuse the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and cut off people's ears and hinder their ability to hear what the say of the Word of God. Amen. And so, at this festivity, there was, there was great reunion. But of course, the three that were a part of the 12 went places with Jesus that the other nine did not go. Three is the number of resurrection in Scripture. Nine is the number of judgment. The nine were only able to judge from an observable standpoint from a distance. But the three were a part of this 
inner circle of a resurrection ring, a resurrection ring in which they would see phenomenons happen and miraculous signs take place that those that were observing from the, the purveyance of justice would never see and would never experience and know. And when Jesus on one occasion went to heal, or as he was journeying, there came a Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, and says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her and she shall be healed. But it seems that Jesus altogether ignored the plea and the cry that came from the sincere heart of one named Jairus. And while yet a woman with the issue of blood came in the press, she came in the thrones of the press ailing, hemorrhaging, hurting and she made her way through it she wanted to have subjectivity that day her faith was not just merely objective it was not talking about the finer talking points but her faith wanted tangibility her faith wanted subjectivity amen so she pressed until she touched the hem of his garment all the while Jairus is standing there with a dumbfounded look look on his face while Jesus turns and pays attention to somebody that touched him and that was not merely talking to him. You see, it's one thing to talk to God. It's another thing to touch Him. If you talk to Him, you may not get His immediate attention. He may become distracted by somebody else's deeper desperation. But if you in your heart of hearts, and if you in the outcry of your ailing soul ever come to the point of utter despair, and you finally touch Him, you're going to get His attention. He turned around in the press and said who touched me for I felt dunamis or virtue flow from me Master, what do you mean who touched you? The throng, the crowd of which, the throng of which is all about you. Everybody is trying to touch you and trying to, 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 to capture a piece of your fame. He said, no, there is a touch and then there is a tangible touch. And there is an objective touch and there's just a brush up, but then there is a subjectivity. There is the subject subjectivity of the appropriation of a hand of faith that connects with my power and I know instinctively that when somebody touches me and they connect with the source there is an outflow that goes from me into them it's just a matter of perspective whether you're talking to God or you've come to the place where you finally touch the hem touch the hem of his garment. But that is a backdrop to this because after she she touched the hem of his garment, he turned, talked to her, and then, no longer seemingly distracted, he begins to journey with Jairus. He does not speak the word, the rhema 
to Jairus concerning his little girl who was 12 years of age. The only child that Jairus had. It's amazing to me in the correlation of scripture. She was 12 years of age and Jesus had 12 disciples. You would have thought that the 12 would have gone with him. 12 to minister to the 12. It's, 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 it's 12 to 12 but 3 went with him to minister to the 12 year old girl. Amen. And so Jesus does not speak a rhema for over her from a distance like he did to the centurion ser servant who said, speak a word only and my servant shall be healed. But Jesus takes the trek and the three, Peter, James, and John, go with him to the house of Jairus and enter therein. And Jesus closes the door because outside much people were making ado and crying and weeping with sorrow because now, amen, why bother? Why even bother any further master? She's already dead. Jesus says, no, she's just sleeping. And Jesus takes these three into this inner circle, this ring of resurrection because he wanted to introduce them to another aspect of his power. Amen. They had to pay the price to take the journey and go a little bit further. But there was a tremendous reward in staying close and commensurate with the master that they learned the art of resurrection power that he said eventually greater works than these shall you do. But before you do greater works, I want you to teach you, I want to teach you the premise of my works and these works I can only do what the Father shows me. And what the Father shows me, I operate by revelation. And Jesus said on this occasion, I want to show you there is a hidden wisdom that the other nine are never going to know as for now. But I want to reveal it to you. I want to show you another dimension of my power. Amen. Right. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And of course, the three went with him to the Mount of Transfiguration as well. When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, the Baptist being the last priest of the Aaronic order, amen, the Old Testament priesthood was inundating and baptizing and immersing the new coming priest that would be after the order of Melchizedek, after the order of Melchizedek and not after the order of Aaron. And so the Aaronic order baptizes the Melchizedek, Melchizedek order in the Jordan River. This thus signifying a transition from one status of priesthood to the status of another. And when the Old Testament priest put down the new into the water, the spirit descended in the form of a dove and the voice of the Father spoke, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But the Father at that particular moment did not did not congratulate the sonship of Jesus Christ to the point that he told the world to listen or hear the voice of Jesus Christ. That happened in Matthew chapter number 17. Amen. Almost three years later when Jesus goes with his three chosen inner circle disciples, his confidants, Peter, James, and John, to the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. And there suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared and his garments began to shine. The garments of Christ 
became crystal white with excellency and dignity and unsolely purity. And the disciples gazed on with wonder and amazement. Why was there the appearing of Moses? He represented the law. Why was there the appearing of Elijah? He represented the ministry of the prophets. And Jesus wanted them to know in this moment I'm bringing the law and the prophetic together. I am the personification of that law. I am the personification of the prophetic office. But I am also much more than that. I'm bringing a marriage. Moses asked me 2,500 years ago, Lord, let me see your face. And I put my hand over his face and passed before and he only saw the hinder parts. He only saw the first five books of the Torah. He wrote them by revelation, but he didn't see my face. But I'm going to fulfill my promise. I'm bringing him back so he can see my face. There's some things about God we only see retrospectively. We only see them looking backwards. Sometimes it takes God a while to get us postured to the place where we can see him face forward, oh, yes, looking forward. Yes, Hallelujah. I see what he's done, but I might have to wait a while to see who he is and what he's going to do. And so Peter, one of the three, has a grandiose idea. Let's build three tabernacles. I bought three booths, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. It's a good thing for us to be here. Oh yeah, it's a good thing. But Jesus says, I got a better thing in store. I want to get you postured at a pulpit on day of Pentecost. How about it, buddy? I want to build a tabernacle out of your flesh. I want to build a house of glory out of your humanity. Hallelujah. The hidden wisdom, the mystery, the mysterion of which was revealed to the three inner circle conglomerates that congealed that ring, that made that group fortify, fortifiable, formidable, powerful. A threefold cord is not easily broken. Hallelujah. You get three people together in a common mindset and purpose. The devil can't break that cord. He can't sever that umbilical. It is the direct line, direct line to life. The vitality, the strength, and the power of the apostolic church. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What is that threefold, threefold fold cord outside of the union ship of Methodist of discipleship? It was found among Peter, James, and John. It's the doctrine of the New Testament. Baptism in Jesus' name, the filling of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And repentance of sins at a threefold cord. Acts 2.38 cannot be severed. It's a doctrine, it's a dogma. It's going to maintain its elasticity and its power. Bear with me. But at the Mount of Transfiguration, different than the baptismal experience that Christ went through when Baptist didn't just dunk him but buried him. Jesus was buried. 
Before he was buried in the tomb, he was buried in the water. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This time on transfiguration, the voice of the Father, the Petra in the Greek, there was this delicate, loving, doting, intricate, deep bond of not just phileo, but agape between the Father and the Son. For the Son was the Father. The Father was one with the Son. I and my Father are one. Amen. Right. The voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Weos, or my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Pardon me. Hear ye him. God the Father never said of Christ, Hear ye him at the waters of baptism. But at the Mount of Transfiguration, when what was revealed or what was hidden in Christ became revealed on the outside. When the hidden wisdom of his humanity in hubris became a revelation in the eyes of the Methetes. He said, Now all the world and all of his followers, you must. It is of heavenly, fatherly prerogative that you must hear him. Amen. Because now I'm giving him the keys of authority to the door of the house. This is a ritual and a custom that God showed us in the Matthean account in Matthew's writing that was further expounded by Paul in his letter to the Galatians. And I'm going to get to my few points in the, next few, uh, in the next few moments. But I want you to listen to the Galatian rhetoric. Paul expounds with brilliancy what Christ, what the Father established in Christ when Paul wrote to the Galatian church. In chapter number four of his letter, he said, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, which is a technon. A, a technon was an underage child, perhaps adolescent, perhaps a babe. Differs nothing from a doulos or a servant, though he be lord of all. The Greek word of lord is kurios. Are you with me? Which means master. This technon... Right now, while he's in the developmental processes and stages of growth, is as a doulos. A doulos was at the beck and call of a master. That he had no prerogatives to do or say what as he wanted to do or say. He must do and say according to the bidding of the master of the house who was his father. Are you with me? But yet, even though this technon is essentially contextually, while yet in his undeveloped state, a doulos, he is in the mind of God, the master of all. He's a servant, and yet he's a master. Jesus Christ executed to perfection the function of servanthood. When he took, laid aside his garments, 
took water in a basin and began to wash disciples' feet on the eve of his being sold out by Judas Iscariot and taken away and tried at the payment. Gabatha. He was the master of all and yet he had this uncanny ability to, to take on the persona of servant of all. He's servant and yet he's master. He's master and yet he's servant. God. In other words, you cannot be a master of any man. You cannot be an effective leader of men until you yourself become a servant to men. Until you assume the capacity of a helping hand to help direct and guide the course of others. Everybody wants to be the master of all, but they don't want to be the good Samaritan that is a servant to all. But this technon that is a doulos, that is yet a master, he is under tutors and governors. Tutors meant teachers or schoolmasters that were would help in the educable process of educating and teaching this technon to develop his mind, to develop his memory so that he could by specificity recite the entire, entire Torah. It was the occupation of the tutor to train the mind of the technon. So that he could grow in the expansion of his wisdom and knowledge concerning the things of God. But until the time appointed of the Father. Amen. Hallelujah. And when Jesus went to the Mount of Transfiguration, why did the Father say and echo more affirmation in the second, in the second revelation that he did in the first, when he said, Hear ye him, because now it was the time appointed of the Father that this technon, according to Paul's premise, had finally maturated to the point under the tutorship and the tutelage of teachers, that now he was a we all son who was 16 years of age and was ready to assume the authority of the house. Amen. Jesus, though he was the Son of God, was yet a technon in the waters of baptism that after three and a half years of public service and ministry, after three and a half years of doing everything the Father told him to do, after three and a half years, amen, of only saying what the Father showed him by revelation when he went to prayer now the father says he's my we awesome it is the appointed time if the world's ever going to listen to him they must hear him now and I believe that God is raising up a generation of sons of God we are not just children we are not just immature we are not just technon but we are we awesome and it's the appointed time of the father that he has commissioned to us authority to govern the house of God. You cannot lead effectively until you have been commissioned with authority. And so, three disciples of that affectionate, deep, deep inner circle go with him finally to another place called Gethsemane. 
They were wide awake on Mount Transfiguration with wide eye wonder, mesmerized by the scintillation of his changing garments to beautiful white. They saw who he really was on the inside. But now, when he goes to a place, the gridiron challenge, the death chamber, a grotesquery of type, a place he'd often visited in repose, relaxation, but now, it wasn't just your normal relaxation. This place became a place of desperation. It was the battle of the soul. It was the battle of the wheel. It was the defining moment in the life of Christ. During the defining moment, in the battle between flesh is weak, spirit is willing, these three disciples who were so privileged to be a part of this sacred reign and fellowship. They slept for sorrow. Jesus sorrowed, but with an agony because he felt the weight of the sin of the world coming on his shoulders. He only survived through prayer. He barely held on on a wing and a prayer. So much so that he went back the third time for the third hour. Sometimes you can accomplish in the first hour or the second hour what only the third hour prayer can produce a harvest in your life. It was in the third hour when you begin to cease to sweat sweat and started sweating blood. First two hours, when you sweat sweat, perspiration is a sign of the curse of man. It's indicative of work. But you start sweating blood, it points to redemption. And the blood didn't start flowing until the third hour. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Sometimes we got to work in some of the first increments of prayer just to get past the works of the flesh. We got to perspire just to get the will of man on the altar. Right. But we could ever, some of us stop praying at that point, but if we could ever get to the point of desperation when we pray beyond the sweating of sweating of work and get to the place where droplets of, of, of redemption begin to come out of the porous pores of our hearts, minds, and souls. I believe something's going to break. There was not, the blood was the sign of the brokenness, not the sweat itself. But these three slept for sorrow, overwhelmed and overcome. It, it wasn't even their experience. They were just observing instead of participating. They had always been there. He had always been there for them. He had always cared for them. He had always shared with them the mysteries of hidden wisdom. He would always set the stage to reveal the Sophia of His excellencies, of His power. Only to them. But they seemed so unappreciative for the t two other times he had taken them into this inner sanctum fellowship. They mistook Gethsemane as nothing but gore, pain. They didn't see the purpose of what he was trying to accomplish. And when you don't see the purpose, 
in what you're trying to accomplish or in the accomplishment of others, it will never stir up the rumblings of a desire for prayer in your soul. I've got a generation that's sleeping on God. Sleeping on others who are bearing the burden of Gethsemane alone. When the twelve, along with the one Jesus, were on board the boat in the midst of a storm, vehement storm, with waves, with white caps rising, beating and splashing against the bow. Jesus was in the hinder part of sleep on a pillow. He's sleeping during the storm because he knew the storm couldn't destroy him. But they came to him and awakened him and he rose from a slumber, stepped out and said, peace be still. And it's amazing to me that he awakened for them, but when he was in his storm, they would not awaken for him. It's humanity for you. Your expectation cannot be anchored in people. Cast not away therefore your confidence. Because your confidence cannot be what others can do for you. That confidence must be rooted in the immutability of His counsel, of His purposes, of His promises that He has prophetically declared over your life. Call to remembrance the former days, He said. There is a sense of nostalgia that's sweeping over the modern-day Pentecostal postmodern movement. Generation X marks the spot. We've gone a little further beyond generation to another generation that has tried to completely redefine the tenets of apostolic truth and totally do a makeover of the miraculous and a feeble fleshly attempt and a foible, perhaps to soil, to spoil, to lessen, to cheapen the value of the apostolic truth of the gospel of the Word of God. Amen. If there's ever been a time that reminiscence, then we, that we need a reminder of the former days, right. it is today of how the Holy Ghost would sweep and move with a gentle gust in former days. Just the slightest zephyr, just the still small voice of a whisper, of an Elijah whisper. We didn't need the fire. We didn't need the wind. We didn't need the clank and the clatter of the finest musicianship. Because God has never been in the fire. God's not even in the earthquake. But God is in what established the apostolic church in the former days. He's always been in the still, small voice. The gentle coo, like the coo of a morning dove. He doesn't speak cacophonously, but he walks into services. Remember the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. It was nothing for God. 
just so sovereignly moving to a service until everything in the house was flat on its face. Remember the former days. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. <clears throat> but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob is never going to be massaged or manipulated in a generation of Jacob. He started out as the God of Abraham, the covenant God. He started out as the God that works through bloodletting. He's not going to be subjected to the caprice of the carnality of a Jacob generation Amen. that wants to go to Israel, then back to Jacob, that wants to worship as Israel on Sunday, but live as the lion Jacob on Monday. We need to remember the former days Amen. when our fathers made a covenant with God in truth and verity. I just somehow feel just just somehow feel that all the old sages that are lying on their deathbed, the few fathers that remain in this generation of a modernized Pentecostal movement, their hearts are troubled. Their spirits are stirred. Their minds cannot help but remember the God of the, the God of the fathers. And I believe some of them, if you were to ask them, what is their dying request? What is their one last wish? They would say unequivocally, I want my old church back. Amen. I want my old church back. Amen. That's what I say today. Yes, he said, upon this rock, yes, I'll build my church. Yes, the gates of hell shall not prevail. I don't want a modern Pentecost that's generated and motivated by prestige, finance, or fame. I don't want a modern movement that ties all of its allegiances in an effort to assimilate itself to a cosmological system that is absolutely diametrical to the principles of truth. I don't want a modern-day church that's all about the instrumentals and the musicianship and the hiring of this one and of the hire of Balaam and of the hire of Jezebelian spirits that are prostituting the truth of the word of God. Today, my cry is commensurate with the outcry of every aging sage that is a father. I want my old church back. I want the church that smothered me. I want the church that cared for me. I want the church where the Holy Ghost freely moved in her midst. I want the church that was purchased by His blood, that was paid by the ransom of His price. I don't want a modern day movement. I want my old church back. I don't want a melted down semblance of Pentecostalism that does not substantiate the Word of God. But today, more than anything, I want to call to remembrance the former days. I want my old church back. I want her with all of her inconsistencies. I want her with her cross. I want her even in her crudeness. 
even in the old dilapidated buildings that didn't look too pretty. But oh buddy, when you stepped across the threshold of the door into that old church, you felt the flutterings of the might of his power and you knew instantaneously that somebody has been with Jesus. That somebody has darkened the doors of an old-fashioned prayer room in the white-hot power and the glow of the glory. I don't want a new church. I want my old church back. I want the old love. I want the old mother who cares for us as you stand this morning. I apologize for keeping you so long. Let me make a few more additional points if you would permit me the license after which when you call to remembrance and reminiscence former days of the old, old church when she was at her finest and the prestigious of all of her heavenly glories when she was her most powerful. You never watched a sinner with cigarette stains and his fingertips and alcohol and wine in his breath walk into the old church and leave the same way he came. But that old church who was so in tune with the ancient of days and the saints that assembled 